Well, good morning, and welcome as we come together this morning. A uh, couple of things to let you know. First of all, I'm not Keith. Uh, Keith helped to move Jonathan up to Virginia Beach this past week, or this weekend, and uh, should be heading on the road here shortly. So remember them and Jonathan as he starts his new position with CBN and ministry there, because I continue to remember him. And of course, pray for uh, Keith and Lisa as they travel back and as they get used to having an empty house. <laughs> that, that'll be different, but uh, continue to be remembering them in prayer, if you will. Um, but today, I want us to, to look at something that all of us experienced this week, Thanksgiving. You remember Thanksgiving? You remember how full you were after Thanksgiving? I remember those days. I experienced it this, uh, this week as well, but my memories when I come to Thanksgiving are of growing up, and my mother's side of the family had huge Thanksgiving meals. Uh, when my grandmother was alive, there would be anywhere from 35 to 45 people in a house. I always got to sit at the TV table because I was one of the youngest. And didn't get a place even at the card table. I got a TV table. I remember that. But as time passed, my grandmother, of course, passed away. But my mom took up the tradition of cooking Thanksgiving meal. And she would have anywhere between 25 and 35 people show up. And my mom, I'm, I'm not prejudiced, not, not partial, but she's the best cook that's ever lived, Okay. But she could put some food down in terms of putting it out to be done, especially for Thanksgiving. There would be the turkey, the ham. She would have about six to eight vegetables, the macaroni and cheese, the mashed potatoes, the potatoes done this way, and desserts. You've never seen so many desserts. There literally would be nowhere to put any other food because all the places were taken with food already on them. And when we finished eating, you could swear that we really didn't eat yet because there was so much left. And of course, the next three or four days, we dealt with those leftovers on and ongoing, as some of you will be doing this week. But those are fun times. And I remember when I was younger, I could plow away and eat and eat and no problems. It was great. There are no consequences to eating too much. As you get older, you understand there become to be consequences to eating too much. And it's just not fun. But the abundance of food that was at those meals was amazing to me. And that thought sort of gave me rise to, to what I wanted to preach on today. And that is living in the abundance of God. Living life abundantly. How do you do that? What does that mean? From society's point of view, there's one way to do it, and we'll look at that today. But from God's way, there's a different way to experience that abundance. I think probably the, the, the place where I want us to start is in Luke chapter 6. You have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be starting at verse 37 and 38. We're actually going to start at verse 38 this morning and work our way back to to 37. But Luke 6, 38 is where we're going to start. This is Jesus talking. He's talking to a massive crowd. 
In fact, the crowd is not just a local crowd. There are people who've come to hear him from Jerusalem and other places. So this is a lot of people. And Jesus is basically teaching them what the kingdom of God is going to be like, how to live in the kingdom of God. And this is sort of in the middle of that section of of Scripture. And at verse 38, he says these words, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it will be poured into your lap. Okay. So I have a little illustration today. This is oatmeal in a container, for those of you who can't see. But y'all know what happens with containers of oatmeal and containers of, say, shredded wheat? This is my breakfast, by the way. I eat shredded wheat and oatmeal. But I do put blueberries on it because they're bland as I'll get out if you don't. But what happens in these containers that you get at the grocery store? Are they full? No. Now, what do they tell you? It's for packing. They, want, they don't want it crushed. And there's truth to that. But there's also probably a little bit of, but we can reduce the amount that we put in the box going on as well, right? We're used to that. Well, back in Jesus' day, they didn't have stuff on the shelf. What they had would be oatmeal ready to go, and you would bring a bowl or whatever you would bring to put in whatever amount of oatmeal would be dipped by the marketeer and put into your bowl. So whatever the measurement was of his device, he would put in to your bowl. Now, you had to depend that he was a good or she was a good measurer of what, was being, what you were buying, right? So let's say you get that much when you go to the market. Is that full? No. You think... And the marketer thinks, or or the person selling it to you is thinking, well, it's close, so I won't complain, is what you say. And the shopkeeper is saying, I hope you don't complain. If you do complain, then they might do this. we'll, we'll, We'll pour a little more in there. Again, will they get it to the top? No. But they'll try to satisfy you. Well, look at what this verse says. It says, you give and it will be given to you a good measure. So what's a good measure? That's not. So would you consider that a good measure? That's pretty good. It's to the top. You know, when you go, have have you ever had anybody give you more than what you expected? It happens every once in a while, and it makes you feel good, doesn't it? It makes your day. I know there are times I'll get um, a, an iced coffee or, or frozen something or another, and I'm looking at them, taking it from the blender and putting it into the cup, and I want to make sure they get every last thing in there that they blended up. And if they don't, I go disappointed. But if they put it into where it's overfilling, man, I feel good about it. I've, I've won. Well, in this particular story, this is what Jesus is saying. You will get a good measure. Well, that's a good measure, but he doesn't stop there. What else does he say about it? It will be pressed down and shaken together. So if you shake it, 
it will allow a little bit more to be put in because some of it settles. If you press it down, though, you can really start getting more in it. In fact, it's now back to where you say, you need to put a little bit more in there. So I will. And I get it back up to the top. But is that where it stops? Notice what he says. Running together, running over. Yes, I'm going to do it because this is the last service. (laughs) That's impressive. That's abundance. That makes you feel good about what you bought, about what you're living. And that's what Jesus is going. In fact, if you notice, there's actually another phrase. We're not going there. Poured into your lap. In other words, there's so much of it that you're looking for a way to get it all. You're using, you know, they, they would have a, a garb where they could hold it up and literally catch it. And that's what he's, the imagery he's trying to get you to see of what's available to us, the abundance that is there if we look for it. Now, a lot of people have taken this verse and have abused this verse. What's called the prosperity gospel, where people say, based on what you do for God in this life, if you ask God, he will give you abundantly things. They mean things, material things. Money, cars. If you ask for a car, if you pray for a car, God's going to give it to you. If you send me X amount of money, a preacher will say, I'll make sure I pray for you to get that car. We've seen those type of things all the time. And that's abusing this verse because Jesus isn't talking about material things when he talks about the abundance that he's offering. What type of abundance is he talking about? We'll look at it in a second. But notice how he finishes this verse. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. However you choose to live is how God is going to treat you, is what he's saying. So what is that standard for abundance? What is Jesus talking about? Well, let's look at it. We're catching this in the middle of his talk, and I'd encourage you to look at this section when you get home, especially, and you'll see more of this understanding of of living differently than the world does. But notice how he starts out what I looked at as verse 37. He says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Two things not to do. Don't judge, don't condemn. What does he mean by that? You're not the final judge of life. God is. So you live in a way that God is the final arbiter of life. He's the one who puts out punishment and who gives reward. You don't have that capability. You will fail at it if you try to go there. Now, does that mean, therefore, we don't live by rules and regulations? No, he's not saying that. He's talking about how you personally look at the world. Do not judge. Another way you can look at that is do not prefer. Do not choose one another another. Live in a way that you show love to all, as we'll see as he goes through this. 
But those are the things he says not to do. What does he say to do? Forgive. Give your forgiveness when you are wronged. And that gives you abundant life. That's what he's saying. Give. And you'll receive more than you ever thought you could give. And those are the two positive ways he looks at this section. So, Jesus is trying to say, this is how you live abundantly. This is how your life should be different as a believer in me. Now, I want to make clear what he is not saying here. He's not doing a works religion where he says, you forgive somebody, then I'll forgive you. What he's saying is, because I forgave you, you should also be able to forgive others. That's not works. That's following an example. That's living the way God lived. You want to live that way too. And there's a big difference between that. But he shows us one side of how to live. The other thing he shows us, and the Bible is full of, are ways how you're not to live. And I want to turn to 2 Timothy. If you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, we're going to look at what here the writer Paul talks about as ways not to live. And I think as we look at this section in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we look at this, you're going to nod your head. And then it's an unfortunate nod that we agree with what he's saying here. Paul is writing to one of the people that he's mentored in the faith. Timothy is now a leader in the church. He's a pastor of a church and of a, a, a group of people. And he's writing things that he wants Timothy to know. And he comes to a section where he talks about how we're to live, and that's in this, the section in, in 2 Timothy 2, just right above this. But then he comes to chapter 3, what we call chapter 3, and he says these words. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Any of y'all see that in the world today? Unfortunately, it seems like the more we live, the more we see it. Notice what he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, is he referring to the last days before Christ comes back? There's some question of this. A lot of times there is belief that when they use the term the last days, they're talking about the time after Christ's death and resurrection and after they have received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. For many of them, the writings talk about this now being those last days. And the truth of the matter is people have lived this way for quite some time. It's not a new phenomenon. But notice what's missing here. He says people will be lovers of God. Isn't that what he says? No. Lovers of who? Themselves. 
People will be lovers of money. We see that operate in our society today, don't we? And then he goes and, and lists some of the qualities that come from that. If you notice sort of middle way in, he mentions unholy, and then he uses the term without love. You even go a little bit further, and he comes back to it once more. Not lovers of good. And then finally he ends it with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. People are seeking the wrong thing. And he says, as time goes on, we will see it over and over again. And we do. So the question is, what do we do about that? Unfortunately, too often I'm seeing more and more of Christians responding the exact same way that Paul refers to unbelievers responding. They have something that they want and they want it so bad that they start operating like the way of the world. And you become a lover of yourself, not a lover of God. And we become lovers of money and power and not lovers of God. Paul is writing to Timothy and he's warning Timothy, there are people like that today in your church. And your congregation. And he says, know that. Be aware of that. And notice what he says even at the end of that. If you keep on reading, he says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, they're coming to church. They may be teaching a lesson. They may be singing. They may be preaching. They're doing the things that appear godly, but their motives are all wrong. They're in it for themselves. They don't understand the power of God and how it's meant to transform us. To make us what Jesus was talking about in Luke. Notice what he says have nothing to do with them. What does he mean by that? Don't live by that way. Don't pretend that that's okay. Live a different standard. Show the world that there is a difference by how you live and the motives. Be a one who is a lover of God and thus you act differently. To do that, I want us to look back at Luke, the few verses right before the passage we just looked at. Luke chapter 6 again. We're going to look at starting at verse 35. You even go before this, you will see the same story emphasized over and over again. And there's a reason why Jesus is taking this opportunity, speaking to thousands of people, to say what he wants them to hear about who God is and who we're to be in response to that. Notice that Luke 6, 35, what he starts out. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. 
That should be a mind-blowing statement to you and me. Because that's the exact opposite of the way we want to live. Love your enemies? Really? Really, God? It's not only just loving your enemies. Look at what else he says. Do good to them. They're your next door neighbor and they're calling the cops on you. Go take them some brownies. They may think the brownies are tainted, but it won't be. Don't do that. Show good to them. And then he goes the next step. What does he say? Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Well, here's $1,000. You're my worst enemy. Here you go. (laughs) No, you wouldn't do that. But Jesus is saying there's a different standard. The world would say destroy your enemies. And boy, do we try to do that these days in our society. As a Christian, we're not called to destroy our enemies. We're called to love them. That doesn't mean that we say, oh, whatever you want to do is fine. No, we say this is the way we believe God calls us to live. And we stand up for that. But believe it or not, you want your enemies to change. You want your enemies to see the light. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul has said is they're not going to do that if we don't live differently than they do. We're just another group who has another cause. We've got to show that we're different. And he calls us to do something that is hard. But Wait a second. It's one thing to speak these words, isn't it? It's another thing to actually see them practiced. Didn't Jesus do that? You remember one of his last things he said while he was on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If it had been me on that cross, you know what I would have done? Father, zap every single one of them. Make them dust. But Jesus was here to show us a different way. In Romans, it talks about while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. And he came to offer forgiveness. Folks, if it wasn't about love, if that's not how God would have wants us to operate, he wouldn't have come. He would not have come. Because he had to offer forgiveness. But he chose to offer forgiveness. Because that's the standard he lives by. And it is the standard he asks us to live by. It's a hard standard. In this world, it can get you abused very easily. Just as Jesus ended up on a cross, you can end up in your bad places too. 
But, believe it or not, what Jesus is saying is, it's the best way to live life. You want to live abundantly? Live this way. You want to experience the abundance of God's love? Live in this manner. For the measure you use will be measured to you. That's hard. It's hard to live in such a way as this. Jesus, even a little bit further, goes on a little bit further and says this. When you do this, he says, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. You know, this is oatmeal. And overflowing oatmeal, you're saying, boy, that made a mess. But what if this were gold? You'd be saying, boy, I hope he leaves it there. But what if it's forgiveness that's more precious than gold? How do you respond to it? You respond by seeing love is what it's about. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Seek to forgive and give. Those are hard things for us. He says, as he ends up, he says, you'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, I don't want to, to, to just say words without giving a, a real-life illustration. And so I was thinking about, okay, how, how common everyday people apply this to their lives? And immediately one thing came to my mind, an incident that happened here in South Carolina about a little over six years ago. A man came named Dylan Roof, came walking into a Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He was a white man, and the people who were there was an African-American church, and so most of the people who go there were African-American. And he saw that they were having a Bible study, and he had planned to come and be there that night. And so he went. And they proceeded to do the Bible study. He would talk to them, oftentimes disagreeing with what they were saying, but they were patient with him. And then they came to a time when they were closing and they had prayer. And as they began to pray, Dylan Roof stood up and began shooting. And shooting. And shooting. His intention was to only leave one alive so that they could tell what happened. He killed nine that day. I remember it well. It happened to be the same time that my mother passed away. And so it was fresh putting those two events together. It gave me sort of a time frame and management. And I remember being so concerned about what was going to happen in South Carolina. Were we going to blow up like Ferguson, Missouri did with race riots? You know why Dylan Roof did what he did? He wanted to start race riots. He wanted to get African Americans and whites against each other for a blow up. 
That was his intent. And I remember the news media as I was traveling back and forth. I remember hearing the news media dealing with this and saying, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I remember hearing about the pretrial. Well, Dylan Roof is taken for his pretrial and his arraignment. And it, all that happens. And then the judge takes a little bit of an unusual step. And he asks those that were there who were members of the family if they had anything they wanted to say. And I remember how blown away the news media was by what a few of them said. They said what wasn't expected. One of them was Nadine Collier. She lost her mother, Ethel Lance. And this is what Nadine said to Dylan Roof. I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. She said that by obviously crying. Not everyone was ready to forgive Dylan Roof that day of the family members. But I remember, if I remember right, that day there were three people who stood up and said the same thing. None of them planning to say what they said. They didn't think they were going to be called on. But they said it. And I remember vividly how the news media didn't know how to react to those statements. This is weird. They should be calling for justice. And they were. But they were also calling for forgiveness. There was another one who also, Chris Singleton, lost his mom that day. And just a few days later, after he had heard what the others had said, he couldn't go to court today. He said, I just couldn't take it. He had time to process what was said. And this is what he said in response to what had started just a little bit earlier. He said, Chris said, after seeing what had happened and the reason why it happened, and after seeing how people could forgive, I truly hope that people will see that it wasn't just saying words. I know for a fact that it was something greater than us, using us to bring our city together. And if you remember that time, Charleston was in panic. But because of the church leaders and others and people like these people, it didn't blow up. In fact, it did a lot, I think, for race reconciliation in this state. Chris Singleton goes on and says, the narrative of forgiveness is submitting, and it means you're weak, or at least that's what people would think. But I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm going to be upset about whatever forever. And it does. And it's hard. And I'm not here to tell you that loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you and forgiving those who hurt you, 
I'm not here to say that that's easy. There were some people who made those statements 48 hours after Dylan Roof had done what they had, that he had done to their family members. Folks, I don't know if I could have done that. But my prayer is that I could eventually get there. Because that's what God asked me to do. Again, that doesn't mean they're saying, oh, let Dylan Roof free, he didn't mean it. No, they're not saying that at all. They're saying, I live differently. I have a different perspective of what life's about. And I'm going to try to live that way. The world will tell you, get your vengeance. Destroy, destroy, destroy. God's saying, learn to love. Even in the midst of pain. You want to be thankful? Use the same measure that God uses as you live your life, or try to. And as I said, it's hard. But it's also rewarding. It's also how you understand the fullness of God and what God wants for you in your life. It's the exact opposite of the way the world works, and thank goodness it is. Because as we see every day, this world doesn't work right. It cries out for help. And our responsibilities as Christians is to say, there is a different way. There is the way of love. Not of love of self, not love of pleasure, not love of money, but the love of God displayed vividly in a cross and hopefully displayed in my life, in your life. Will it win people over? It very well may, and it very well may not. But we're not responsible to how people respond to us. We're responsible to how we live our lives. And living life is living in the abundance of the forgiveness and the mercy that God has given you. And that enables us to learn how to love even our enemies. At the end of Luke 6, where he sort of finishes the story, he tells them a parable sort of to conclude everything. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Can they? No. There's no way. Will they not both fall in the pit? Will they not both end up in disaster? He's telling us, don't operate the way the world does. You're just as blind as they are. Don't put on a form of godliness, but not live it. Learn what it is. Learn the ways of God. And seek to live them. And then instead of being the blind leading the blind, you can be someone who sees pointing someone to the right way. The way of the cross. The way of ultimate forgiveness.
he also says at the beginning of this section, Luke six thirty three, he says, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. We got to live differently, folks. And that means we're conscious of what we say, of what we post, of how we act, and of how we think, and how we give, and how we forgive, and how we love. It is only in the grace of God and His Holy Spirit living on us that that difference can be shown. But it can be shown if we're living to li- willing to live that way. Let's close in a prayer. Father, thank You. Thank You for showing us forgiveness. For showing us a way that is different. For showing us a way that Father, gives us an opportunity to have something that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, even though we were once your enemies, we're now considered family. Father, may that influence how we live each day of our lives. Learn to live that way. And Father, forgive us for the times when we've lived by the standards of this world. Help us to see in our everyday life that there is a different way. And may we learn to apply it. We may struggle with it, but God, through your help and through your leadership, you will show us a path. Thank you for that path that leads to the right way, the way of abundance, the way that makes life make sense. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.